Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. As you know, I'm a political scientist. My graduate school training at the University of Kentucky mainly involved reading seminal and cutting-edge work in political science and then discussing it, writing about it, and ideally building on it. Now, I mention this because of all the eminent political scientists I was exposed to in graduate school, none impressed me more than my guest today, Dr. Gary King of Harvard, who, in my view, is the foremost political scientist of uh, the least the last half century. Uh, His list of achievements and honors is is frankly staggering. He's authored or co-authored over 150 scholarly journal articles, 20 open source software packages, eight books, and he's won more prizes, awards, and honors than you can shake a stick at. And he's a fellow in eight honorary societies, including the National Academy of Sciences. His work encompasses a broad range of issues, including demographic forecasting, legislative redistricting, Chinese government censorship and social media use, bias in Social Security Administration forecasts, analysis of big data, and numerous publications in the area of what one might broadly term statistics and modeling. Dr. King, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, and thanks for your kind introduction and generous introduction, too. Certainly. Uh, Now, Going through your CV, which which I did in preparation for our talk, is a somewhat daunting experience. I mean, you've done so much work in so many areas. I'm wondering if you see any unifying theme or themes in your work. So uh, I think of myself as a methodologist. Um, uh, it's interesting you use the word unifying themes because the word unifying appears in a lot of my um, of my work because um, I try I try to do that, but um, Maybe I could tell the story that when I was in graduate school, people said that my professors said, you know, Gary, you're working in American politics and comparative politics and international relations and who knows what else. You're scattered, which is about the worst thing you can say to a graduate student other than get out of here. Um, and I kept saying, well, no, I'm a methodologist. And they said, Gary, there's no such thing as a methodologist. <laughs> you're scattered. And I kept sort of just doing what I was doing until I remember one day one of my professors said to me, wait a second, I get it. You're not scattered. You're a methodologist. You're narrow. And, and once they realized that I was narrow, then it was okay. Right? And, and I realized I could keep doing what I, what I wanted to be doing. So the unifying theme, I think, is methodology. And, I'm, and by focusing on methodology, I get to have a seat at the table at lots of really interesting research projects. Um, yeah, you know, I, I want to talk about some of those areas and some of those research projects, uh, starting with one area that's, I think, of interest to a lot of listeners, legislative redistricting. Now, I think there are a lot of people who think this should be really simple. You just kind of bunch people together in sort of naturally occurring neighborhoods, make congressional districts as geographically compact as possible, uh, make sure that the populations and districts are roughly equal throughout the state, and boom, you're done. Now, why is it so obviously not that simple in practice? Well, the really interesting thing is what you just said is a pretty good summary of many state constitutions. Um, And so in some sense, it just says, do exactly what you said. However, the things that you listed often contradict each other. 
So the most compact district is not necessarily the most fair district. And the most fair district is not necessarily the one that's going to get you reelected if you're in charge of redistricting. Um, and there's, in fact, there's a long list of other criteria. Some are legally required. Some you can implement and have an influence on in, in politics. And that's what, pol that's what partisans do, of course. Um, and some of them you can just do. Um, and so who's to say which of these are, are required and which of these are going to take effect? Um, and the partisans basically get to do that. And so that's and basically any time you have discretion, uh, <clears throat> that, that leaves room open for uh, lots of political um, shenanigans. So uh, speaking of those political shenanigans or possibly finding ways to minimize them, let's let's say you are in charge of legislative redistricting or or at least in charge of, well, you know, in charge of maybe putting together the process, I guess, by which it was done by some other body or bodies. What in, in general terms would that would that look like? So, I, you know, I, I try to be the scientist providing the methods and analysis and let the policymakers do the policy. Um, I, I guess I like my day job, but of course we'd also we'd all like to be policymakers too. Um, and uh, so, but but let me let me focus on a few of the things. So I think pretty much most everyone would want partisan fairness. There's a lot of other things they would want as well, um, but we'd want fairness to the parties. What the reason redistricting is such an intensely conflicted area? It's it's it, it, since uh, George Washington's first presidential veto, which was about apportionment, to the present day, there are fistfights on the floors of state legislatures because of it. And the reason why is because we're changing the rules of the game. Right. Anytime you change the rules of the game, people pay very close attention to these things. Um, no surprise. Uh, and so uh, so what what would we what would we want to insist on? So if I were actually in charge, I would say let's require that that there be partisan fairness. Political scientists over over quite some period of time have developed standards for partisan fairness and have developed methods of analyzing partisan fairness. <clears throat> um, one of the one of the first papers I wrote was uh, on uh, a, a method of of uh, not a method, but a standard for partisan fairness called partisan symmetry, which pretty much everybody um, uh, agrees with and has built on and and we've built we built on other people's work and political science as a community has developed partisan symmetry as our method of of um, of uh, and a sequence of methods of evaluating partisan symmetry in order to figure out whether a plan is fair to one party or the other. I think it would be very easy for the court to say, you know what, when you pass a plan, what you should do is require partisan symmetry. And I think <clears throat> I think that is effectively what almost all the courts do. Um, because they're all, all, all the partisans on all the sides and all the redistricting cases, they're now estimating the degree of deviation from partisan symmetry. Um, and uh, the the experts in uh, or who many of whom are political scientists all know these standards and use the methods that we've developed um, and others. And um, uh, you know we've made a lot of progress in influencing the law. And so, but I think the the, the court should just um, or the courts should just make it explicit. I think that would that would constrain the gerrymanders even further. There are lots of other things as well. I'd like to welcome a new sponsor to the show today, Brooklyn. 
Now, I am very, very picky about sheets. I've sent back sheets. I It is so hard for me to find good sheets. And so when Brooklyn and, uh, asked about being a sponsor of the show, I was both excited and a little apprehensive because I thought, what am I going to do if I don't like these sheets? Because I don't like most sheets. I am, like I said, very, very, let's say discerning. But I tried these, my Brooklyn and sheets, and I got to say, they they are my favorite sheets ever, literally. So, you know, and considering how much time I spend in bed, how much time you probably spend in bed, investing in high quality sheets, really, really, it's a smart move. It can make a big difference. But of course, so many high quality sheets are so incredibly expensive. We're talking markups that can be more than 300%, which to me is crazy. And here's where Brooklyn comes in. They're a husband and wife team who founded their company to give people luxury sheets without that luxury price. Now, I love my Brooklyn sheets. Try them, and I know that you'll love them too. You'll have to get your own. You can't try mine. But Brooklyn.com has an exclusive offer just for Politics Guys listeners. Get $20 off and free shipping when you use promo code TPG at Brooklyn.com. In fact, Brooklyn is so confident that you'll love your new sheets that they offer a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all of their sheets and comforters. So there's no reason not to give these sheets a try. Now, the only way to get that $20 off and free shipping is to use promo code TPG at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com, promo code TPG. Brooklinen, these are the best sheets ever. So by bipartisan symmetry, do you mean uh, what I heard some people saying in the popular press talking about wasted votes in a district? Is that sort of a, a similar kind of concept or that, that concern that I guess if you pack a whole bunch of people together in one district, a lot of those votes are essentially wasted, I've heard it described as? Well, it's a more it's a it's a better partisan symmetry is a better standard than than wasted votes because you don't really know what's wasted at any one time. Here's the idea of partisan symmetry. Let's take one district at one time. If 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 you and I are running against each other and you get more votes than me, then then you should be the person who gets elected. And if I get more votes than you, I should be the person who gets elected. That's a rule. That rule is uh, plurality, the, the uh, sort of first past the post, or plurality, the, whoever gets the plurality of the votes gets the seat. And the reason that's fair, the reason that you and I would consider that fair, is that whoever gets the plurality of the votes gets the seat. You don't have to use the person's name. It, it wouldn't be that you have to get 60% and I only have to get 36%, right? So it's, so it's symmetric, right? So it's, <clears throat> so if, you got so now let's apply let's apply that concept to the whole state to to an entire redistricting plan for let's say all of Kentucky. Um, so how do we do that? Well, let's suppose you got fifty five percent of the votes for your party, and you are able to translate that into seventy five percent of the seats just based upon how the districts were constructed. Well, you might say that's fair. You might say that's unfair. Here's how we actually evaluate it. What we say is. If the other party, let's say my party, got 55% of the votes under the same redistricting plan in a different election, just suppose it happened to be a year in which my party did better, then I would need to translate that into 75% of the votes. If you get, if when you get 55% of the votes, you get 75% of the seats, but when I get 55% of the votes, I only get 65% of the seats, that's not fair. That's not symmetric. Um, and so that's the idea of partisan symmetry. 
it's a straightforward generalization of what happens in one district that we all agree with. Gotcha. That that makes sense. So, you know, of course, there are some political scientists who say that gerrymandering really isn't as big of a deal as at least some people in the media make it out to be. I mean, do you feel that the importance or the effects of the electoral effect of gerrymandering is blown out of proportion by the media? Sometimes it absolutely is. Uh, um, uh, a couple of us wrote an article um, some years ago that showed that there are there are a wide variety of conditions in which redistricting actually makes things better. That is, the fact that we have redistricting compared to not having redistricting at all tends to reduce the amount of bias or deviation from partisan symmetry in the system um, and tends to increase responsiveness because redistricting is such an unpleasant process for the incumbents especially that they often retire at that time. Right. It's some guy in a basement that that is going to decide whether you have a job. Right. And you don't even have access to that person often. It's a very unpleasant process. Um, so the, so it can be that redistricting actually makes things better. And it can and it can also be that redistricting creates basically random terror for the system and it cre and it can create um, all kinds of all kinds of issues. It's basically tinkering with the rules of the game. So no surprise that the effects can be big, but you're right, they're not, they're not always big. And, and I find that uh, often partisans will sometimes, just as you say, massively overestimate the effect, and sometimes they'll, they'll ignore effects that are they're extremely important. In fact, there's little things in redistricting that you see if you study them up, up if, you see, if you study redistricting sort of personal and up close and you watch what happens, um, that really affects, affects things a lot. Let me tell you one story. So uh, I was involved in a, in a redistricting case in, in one state and in, in order to get access to the data, you often have to participate. So I participated, um, evaluated the, the plans for racial fairness and partisan fairness and for various other things. And there was a, an incumbent who was really, really annoyed with this redistricting plan. And he said, and, and I said, why, why are you annoyed by this? Your party's gonna, gonna, gonna come out well. Um, uh, in fact, and then, and then I looked him, I looked up a prediction for his district and he was gonna win by, by I think it was 77% of the vote, right? I said, you're gonna, what, what is the big deal? You're gonna win. Uh, the, the, the redistricting plan's fair, your party's going to come out all right, what's the big deal? And he said, look at the district that they drew for me. Just look closely at the district. You see my mother's house? They drew my mother's house out of the district. They drew my, my kids' schools out of the district. <laughs> they put my wife's place of work out of the district. They're just trying to annoy me. <laughs> there's, there's no law in America that, that would defend that, you know, those kinds of complaints. Right? That's not illegal. It's perfectly legal. So you can see why it would have a, it, ha, it can have a devastating effect for individuals or for individual incumbents or for the people represented by those incumbents, even if the list of requirements that you gave earlier for uh, redistricting and many state constitutions give were all followed. Right. You know, moving on to another uh, issue, social security forecasting. That that's another issue that or another area you've examined and. For a lot of years now, Americans have been told that Social Security, it's headed for insolvency. I think that the year it's now estimated that's supposed to happen is 2034. And I'm wondering what sort of assumptions go into predictions like that? And, and how much weight do you give 
findings about things that are going to happen in 2034 exactly? So that's a really interesting problem. Um, it doesn't really matter how much weight you have to give them because there must be forecasts. So the way the Social Security uh, uh, trust fund works is if there's not enough money in the trust fund, the trust fund goes insolvent, right? So what does that depend upon? It depends upon forecasts of how much money is going to be in there. And that then depends upon forecasts of mortality. So if all of a sudden someone invents some pill and we all live to 200, well, that'll be great, but the trust fund will go insolvent and so we'll all be very poor. So mortality forecasts are an absolutely critical part of making social security um, work. Um, so one of the things we did actually is we asked your question and we said, um, you know, let's look at the forecasts that the Social Security Administration makes, right? Because they're required to make them. They've been required to make them for like 85 years since the program was was started. Um, and we, we went and we collected all the forecasts and we looked at all the evaluations ever done by the Social Security Administration. And 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 a list of all the of all the evaluations is as follows. None. They'd never evaluated their forecasts. So. So in order to ask, answer your question, the first thing we have to do is make ourselves vulnerable to being proven wrong, right? That's like the, that's the key. And the only way to do that is to, in this case, is to make a forecast and see how you do. And so, so that's actually what we did in this case. We, we collected all their forecasts. Uh, we, the, the forecasts have been made for so long that the year that they were forecasting has actually occurred in many cases. So we collected all those cases. We used the comp we, we compared the forecasts to the truth. We used the complicated statistical method of subtraction to compare the two. <laughs> um, and and, uh, and 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 we we got to evaluate their forecasts. And if the, the results, if I could give you a quick summary, um, were really interesting because um, until about the year 2000, the forecasts were pretty good. They were unbiased, by which I mean sometimes they were too high. Sometimes they were too low, but on average, they were about right. And that's basically what you want in a forecast. You're absolutely right that you can't expect them to be right all the time, but you can expect them, but you should expect them to be unbiased. So, so that, and that, that was the case until about the year 2000. After the year 2000, their mortality forecasts, their financial forecasts, all the different forecasts they made started to go wrong. And they went, they all went wrong in the same direction. They all went wrong, indicating that the system, the, the Social Security Trust Fund was healthier than it really was. And so that was a good finding. And it, it, I mean, not a good finding for the trust fund, not a good finding for those of us who hope that there will be a trust fund when we retire, um, but a good finding because once we know it, it is something that we can do something about. Now, you would think, at least maybe you would think, that given advances in, in, in methodology and so forth and, and data collection, that predictions would actually get better over time. So, so are you saying that we're actually in some way, for some reasons, getting worse at predicting this stuff than we, we were in the past, which seems kind of counterintuitive? Well, in this one uh, government agency, yes, they got worse. Um, but they also didn't update their methods. So that was another thing we figured out, that they basically have been using the same methods for 85 years to forecast mortality. 
And that's not, you know, the reason we went and looked at that is that we developed these new methods of estimating mortality that seemed to work better than all the existing methods. And we went and looked at the methods that the Social Security Administration used to forecast mortality, and they weren't even using the best existing methods. So, you know, revealing this, I think, is a very important thing, the kind of thing that that uh, academics can do and can make a can make a difference sometimes. Right. Is that still the case that they're still using essentially outdated methods? Um, you know, I don't know exactly what they're doing today. Um, I think uh, I think we should we should go and go and study them. I, we 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 gave them all of our results. We went down to Washington and and um, met with the, met with their advisory uh, panels, and um, and it was quite re- reported quite widely in the media. I I um, have no doubt that they're that they're um, updating their methods, but I haven't seen it, so I don't know. We'll have to do another study. They, they don't, they, they're they not required to call us to call us back and tell us what the, what their progress is. Right. <laughs> you, you know, another agency that's uh, been in the news a lot lately is the, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, and with its predictions that, you know, for healthcare, that by 2026, over 20 million fewer people would be covered by either the House or the Senate healthcare bills, bills than under, under current law. And you know, one response by the Trump administration, as well as from some conservatives, is that the CBO has pretty much demonstrated that it can't make accurate predictions about the future of health care costs. So essentially, its findings should be taken with a grain of salt. Uh, do you think there's anything to that? Well, any forecast, of course, it shouldn't be we shouldn't expect it to be exactly correct. We should expect it to be, like I mentioned with Social Security, to be right on average um, over long periods of time. Um, the the small amount that that uh, my co-authors and I have looked at the CBO indicates that their forecasts do appear to be unbiased on average, and so I, I certainly would pay attention to what they're doing, and they do seem to use um, uh, pretty close to, to um, state-of-the-art methods, and so. You know, I don't. I didn't evaluate their healthcare forecasts or anything like that. But for other forecasts in which they've made a forecast uh, into the future, and we wait to see what happens, um, uh, they seem to actually do pretty well. Um, but we, but you know, further systematic evaluation of these kinds of things, um, I think, would be really valuable. Um, the Social Security uh, analysis that I mentioned. Uh, uh, you know, we beat up on the Social Security Administration, really the actuaries, um, quite a lot. Um, but we should also beat up on on ourselves as well, because we study what they do, and no academics had evaluated them either. Um, so I think it's really important that we ask the questions you're asking and and, and figure these things out. Uh, at the moment, I would say CBO seems to be doing a pretty good job. So if, if I understand correctly, it sounds like that at least in at least for the Social Security Administration, maybe for some other government agencies, that there's really no feedback loop built into this. While by what I, by which I mean, while there may be predictions required or forecasts required, there's no automatic mechanism by which these these agencies are forced to take a look at the accuracy of their results over time and then make adjustments based on those findings. And one would think that a rational system of evaluation would build that sort of thing in, no? I think we should put you in charge. <laughs> I like that uh, idea. Government, governments, as, uh, as, as you and, and uh, many other political scientists know, are not always designed to be rational, right? They're, you know, they're designed to accomplish the goals of the people uh, who run them. And those things um, are related sometimes and not always, not always at other times. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 
Now, the kind of a more meta question, I guess, some people would argue that once you get to sort of a certain level of size and complexity that even, you know, the best models developed by the smartest people using huge data sets just break down because there are too many moving parts to consider, especially if you're trying to project years or, or even decades into the future. And if that's true, then that would be an argument for sort of cautious incremental policy change. Do you think that's a, a viable, reasonable argument to make? I mean, cautious incremental policy change is a good idea regardless. Um, uh, because if you make a change, you can have a massive effect on a massive number of people. So of course, of course we should do that. But we, but it's not that we should do that um, because there are problems with data or problems with analyses or the questions are too difficult. We should do that because it enables us to evaluate what we're doing. Um, you know, if you think about what government programs are, right? The way I think of government programs is they're huge experiments with no control groups. Right. We get to it's like giving, you know, half the population a medicine and you never you never see any you never measure the other half. You know, you never see what the consequences, you never see what the cause is, you never estimate the causal effect. Um, well, that's changing. Um, but but um, we really need to uh, to make a change faster. Yeah. So, you know, I, when you mentioned that, I immediately thought about the Seattle experiment, about the, the minimum wages and the dueling studies and so forth. And just so much how it's so much harder to do that sort of thing in, in the social sciences than in the natural sciences. I think that's right. But but um, one of the big successes of political science and the other social sciences is we've trained a lot of really good students. They've gone out and they now work in governments. Um, governments are now making data available much more frequently. That makes it possible for academics to analyze uh, data and to make contributions back to the government agencies. Um, the, the agencies are now allowing us to do experiments um, uh, so that the policies, when they're rolled out, we can not only implement them, but we can learn from them, improve them in, 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 in the field as, as they're being implemented, or at least for the next version. Um, uh, it, 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 we're having an influence directly through our work and indirectly through the students who wind up be, being in, in government agencies. So it's, it's easier to talk to them. Uh, it's easier to see what the consequences are, and it's easier to actually actually improve. Right. Yeah, I wanted to ask, you mentioned availability of data and, and you know, we've seen this rise in what's been called big data. Uh, and I'm wondering, do you think that the proponents of it are overstating the potential benefits of using these sort of massive data sets to design ideally more efficient, more effective government programs? Or is it really uh, a sea change in how we're approaching, uh, well, just not, not only just government, but the private sector as well? Um, I think it is a sea change, but it's not just about the av availability of data. Um, so just to take an example, today there are there were 750 million social media posts that were written and put on the web and are available for research. If you don't know how to analyze those data, um, you know, what, what good is that going to do with, for you? You're going to write them on index cards and put them in your office? It's not going to happen. Uh, and then tomorrow, when big data becomes bigger data and there's 850 million social media posts, is that going to make it easier to analyze? No, actually, the, the, 
revolution here is not in the data. Big data is not actually about the data. It's about what social scientists do with the data. So there really is a revolution. And the really interesting thing is your listeners are part of a big uh, research program, a big movement that <clears throat> about how to analyze data that we all take for granted, but which has spread through government through nonprofits, through international agencies, through the corporate world, through the startup world, and it has improved them all. I mean, it has had a massive effect. I mean, it's created whole new industries. It's, it's remade most Fortune 500 companies into data organizations in which they're basically doing what we would call social science research on slightly, slightly different questions. Um, so no, I don't think it's overestimated. I think if you ask, uh, if you ask a data analyst to do any particular question, they can't necessarily do it. But the but the changes in the world because of the kinds of of analyses that we run and the the kind of methods that we develop really are very very big. You know, I, I, I we've also seen some changes in terms of how politics is covered. Thanks, I think, to the rise of uh, data journalism. We've seen sites like Vox and Five Thirty Eight and The Upshot. I think are the three most prominent. Uh, but conservative critics argue that, or many times they argue that this is essentially liberal activism that's dressed up by journalists who have essentially cherry pick data and studies that support their predetermined conclusions. And so I'm wondering, do you think that people should trust these sources more than traditional political journalism because they include more data in their analyses? Or is there something to what the conservative critics are saying? Well, it's certainly possible to use data and statistics and the most rigorous methods to produce any outcome you want. There's no question that's true. Um, and so you say, well, well, what is it that we're doing in academia? Just to push your question a little further, like, aren't we just just uh, basically the same uh, commentators on CNN where you ask them a question and you know with 100% certainty what the answer is and you only watch just to see how they get to the answer? Like, how is it that we're different? So let me distinguish what we do from what they do, right? So the data journalists are sort of in the middle. The, the partisans are obviously just trying to get to an outcome. Um, the, the, the scientists though have something special. The political scientists, social scientists, we have something special. And that is we have a community with a particular set of rules. And the rules are that if we can, can genuinely convince everyone else of something that's different than what they believe in, we get some credit. And the farther I, we can convince you or everyone of, uh, to change their opinion, the more credit we get. So if you, or, you and I could convince people that smoking was good for you, uh, human-induced cl climate change didn't work, and it's really good to eat as much as you possibly can every day and not exercise, we would be the most famous scientists of all times. Of course, it's not going to be possible to do that because the community is also based not just on arguing and you know paying people off, but it's based upon some kind of, of, of <clears throat> emphasis on trying to find the right answer. Uh, so but they so what, what does that mean? That means that science or social science is not about being scientific. It's about the community of scholars working in cooperation and competition in pursuit of the same goals. So you don't get there. You don't get to what we have without the community of people. In fact, pretty much all of the progress or a very large fraction of the progress 
that humanity has made over the last 400 years or so comes from that particular social organization that is the scientific community. So now let's look at data journalists. So data journalists are adopting some of our methods, um, which is terrific. They're being more scientific. That's terrific as well. Um, but them by themselves doesn't really do it, right? Because there's no community. It's really easy to fool yourselves. It's difficult to fool other people. So are they really are they really going to make progress by by doing that? Well, yes. Why? They, they're going to make progress not because what they're doing, not because of uh, they're following our rules, which they are. In fact, very often they are our students. Um, but what they're doing is they're making it possible for other people to see what they did. So they're actually producing replication data sets very often, just like we do. They're actually describing, maybe not in their article, but somewhere else on a blog post somewhere, what they actually did, how they actually analyze the data. That then makes it possible for someone else to improve on what they did. And since someone else might then do that, they would anticipate that and improve on their own. So they're adopting some of the practices of the scientific community. And that is the thing that has produced the progress. And that's, that's why it's a, it's a great um, uh, development. So moving away from data journalism specifically, and just kind of pulling back and talking about the media in general, obviously, I'm sure you, you know, you consume a lot of media. And so when you read or watch or listen to the news as a methodologist, are there any things that you see journalists doing uh, on a regular basis that maybe make you cringe or maybe even make you angry, especially things that have to do with uh, the use and the presentation of data? Uh, cringe for sure. Um, uh, so, um, uh, I'll give you some, one example is, uh, is commentary on, on presidential elections. So, you know, perfectly well that whoever wins a presidential election, um, the, the commentators look at that and then they explain everything in light of what just happened. Okay. And there was a big surprise in this last election. And the big surprise is the candidate won that people didn't expect to win. So, so what does that mean? Well, actually, let's look at what actually happened that we predicted really, really, really well, which is the votes of almost all of Americans. It's true that the, the predictions were a, a percent or two off. But if you think about it, what, what did the prediction say? The prediction said, oh, it's going to be about 50% or 52%, plus or minus, if you, if you get the uncertainty intervals right, plus or minus 4 or 5%. So basically, the prediction said, we have no idea really who's going to be president after January 20th, but we do know a tremendous amount how almost all the voters will cast their votes. Not all of them, but almost all of them. Um, so, so, for example, if before the election you said, let's bet, um, uh, would you take a bet that 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 there was any chance that the Republicans or the Democrats would have gotten 75 percent of the votes? No way. Political scientists know a lot about this. Right. We know that that people are very stable. They have relatively predictable political views. Um, it's true. The polls are varying. We're watching small changes in the polls over the elections. But how many people do you know who change their opinion from liberal Democrat to conservative Republican and back during the course of a single campaign? I mean, basically none, right? We, people are very stable and that's something that we know as political scientists. And that meant, that means that we actually predict things, these things well. If you ignore that and you just say, oh, well, the wrong candidate won, here's what happened. 
then the commentaries just go, diverge so far from reality that, yeah, it becomes cringeworthy. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, moving away from domestic politics, another area you've examined is censorship and social media use by the Chinese government, which seems to me to be sort of a departure from this other stuff we talked about. So I'm wondering, how did that come about? Why did you decide to take that up? Oh, so uh, let me tell you what we were intending to study when we wound up studying Chinese social media and censorship. We were intending to study uh, uh, methods of automated text analysis in English. That's what we were studying. And we thought, well, well, let's take our methods and let's improve them. And how do you improve them? One way, it, one way of improving them is to push them until they break. Right. Let's let's see whether we can find a way that they fail and then we would improve them. So we thought, um, you know, my, my two co-authors, um, Molly Roberts and Jen Pan, both were graduate students at the time. And we realized both of them spoke Chinese. They just happened to speak Chinese. And we said, hey, why don't we push these methods until they break by taking the methods that were designed for English language social media uh, analysis and try it in Chinese? So we went to Crimson Hexagon, which is a firm that I founded actually, uh, using some of the methods that um, I developed previously. They go around the world, they collect um, their own social media posts, and although I don't run the company or anything, um, uh, they'll still speak to me. And so they gave us a, a little database of uh, social media posts in Chinese with with the post that was scraped off the web with and the URL from which they came. And in that, in those data, um, we we took the data, we reanalyzed the data, we we found some of our methods, and we were going to write this paper on automated text analysis now with an improved method, but also in how you, how you do it in Chinese. And we thought that'd be a great paper. And at some point, I said to Molly and Jen, "Hey, why don't you go back to the websites from which these posts came? You know, click on the URLs and." just try to understand the detailed context from which the, the, the data are coming. Uh, and so they came back to my office and they said, you know, there's something wrong with the data from Crimson Hexagon, because when we click on the posts, sometimes it goes to the goes to the website, you know, looks sort of like a, a Chinese version of Facebook. But sometimes you click on it and nothing happens. And I said, show me. So they walk over to my computer and we're clicking on we're clicking on posts and sure enough you see some of them it goes to the website some of them nothing happens it just it just waits and you know but on the web if it waits you know you sort of don't know what that means and we're clicking and clicking and finally we click on one and it says this post is being investigated and we're thinking they're social media posts. Who's going to investigate a social media post? And then we realized, wait a second, this is China. <laughs> you know? And so we realized at that moment that we had stumbled upon a way to download all Chinese language social media posts before the Chinese government could read and censor them. And so we thought, let's forget that paper on automated text analysis in Chinese <laughs> and, and go and, and, and we pursued this project. Wow. So what did you find? I mean, more, most generally regarding how the Chinese government uses social media and did you, was there anything that was surprising to you? Uh, yes, absolutely. So we did a, um, a paper on two papers on censorship and one on actually fabricating, they fabricate social media posts as well. So for censorship, what everybody thought, what we thought, what ac academics, journalists, everybody thought was they would censor criticisms of the policies and the governments and the leaders. It turns out that's completely false. 
they don't say they, if you said the leaders of this town are all stealing money here's how much they all have mistresses and here's their names that won't be censored but if you say and let's go protest and the protest is related to something that's going on on the ground that will be censored they don't care they don't care what you what you think of them they are a bunch of dictators what should you think of them right we know what you think of them right but if you actually act on it then then that matters uh, moreover, if you say the leaders of this other town, they're doing a great job. Let's go have a rally in their favor. That will also be censored, right? They don't care what you think about them. They only care what you can do. They're not afraid of the United States government or the West. They're afraid of their own people. That's what they need to pay close attention to. And their own people rising up, that's what could get them thrown out of office. Right. And so that's that's it turned out that, yes, of course, that makes sense. It didn't make we didn't think of it ahead of time. But that's what that's what we discovered. It also turned out that the the criticism, not only did they ignore it, but it was incredibly useful for them. So imagine you're in charge of China. There's 700,000 towns and cities across China. You effectively appoint somebody to run them all. Holy cow, that's a lot. How are you supposed to monitor them? What happens in one case if, one, if the leaders of one town are stealing too much money and annoy their people so much that they rise up to, <clears throat> in protest against them and that starts spreading contagiously across the country? How do you nip that in the bud when there's 700,000 of them? Well, you can't do 700,000 public opinion polls, but you could monitor criticism on social media. So we know, so we, so they do that. When there's a lot of criticism, they just take the leader, the leader out, which then was also remarkable for us because then we could predict when they were going to do that. Cool. Oh, that's really fascinating. Uh, wow. So uh, kind of pulling back a little bit and talking, going back more to domestic uh, uh, politics and policy, I, I think it's safe to say that most Americans, well, I guess really most people anywhere, uh, aren't nearly as comfortable with numbers or with data as they are with words or with narratives. And so I'm wondering, do you have any recommendations for people who might want to get better at interpreting what they see, or, or I guess at the very least, want to be less likely to be taken in by shoddy data? So it's not the data, it's, it's what you do with the data. So there's, so pretty much data almost always have problems. That's um, the, it, the, the point of scientific inference is taking facts you have to learn about facts you don't have. All right. And it's the methods that get, get you from one to the other that that is the um, that, that that is what we do, basically. Um, and so the data that, you know, that is shoddy, it just doesn't have the, it doesn't have the facts that you want. So how do you get there? So your question then applies really to the methods of how you analyze the data. And there's plenty of shoddy uh, methodological analysis. If you're a member of the public and you're trying to figure things out, um, it's not going to be possible for you to learn all the rules of of data analysis um, unless you want to become a data analyst um, or a social scientist, and that'd be terrific. I highly recommend it. Come study with us. Um, but more likely, you know, you'd like some some you know a, a set of rules of thumb. But the rules of thumb don't exist for like a hundred percent of what we do. So what do you do? Well, I would look at the community, look at the consensus in the scientific community. It could be wrong. It is wrong often, but there's not going to be any other set of rules that's going to necessarily get you better, get, get, get you there better. So 
that's probably the, the, the closest to a, set, a, a quick rule without reading things. Figure out what the, what the scientific consensus is. Don't, you know, don't, don't assume it's correct, but um, also don't assume that, that you, can, you can outwit it if you're not an expert in the field. Right. So one final question for you. Uh, it's, it's a little off politics and data analysis, but it's something I've been wanting to ask you for, for literally now for over 20 years. Uh, so I'm going to take this opportunity. Uh, you know, you're, you're an amazingly productive person, obviously. And so I'm wondering uh, if there is a secret, what's your secret? I mean, how have you managed to pursue so many diverse interests at such a high level now for over 30 years without just completely burning out? <laughs> That's an awesome question. Thank you so much. Um, well, heck, it's a it's a real privilege to be able to engage with the scientific community, and it is. It, and I, it's hard to think of anything more interesting or fascinating or addictive than learning new things about the world. So, getting to be able to do that every day, I mean, that's that seems like the best um, uh, the, the the best answer to your question. Well, all right. With that, we will close. Dr. Gary King, thank you so much for talking with me today. Great. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. That's it for this Politics Guys interview. We hope you liked what you heard and that you'll check out today's sponsor, Brooklinen, where you can get $20 off and free shipping on sheets that I really, really love. No kidding. And that's brooklinen.com, B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com, promo code TPG. And hey, if you've got a question, comment, correction, or just want to say hi to us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post throughout the week is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.